the nonprofit MBA purpose is to provide new business insights and fresh creative ideas for executive directors and their teams that will help them improve their organization. Here is your host, Stephen Halasnik. Welcome, everyone. My name is Stephen Halasnik, and I am co-founder and managing partner of Financing Solutions. Financing Solutions is the leading provider of lines of credit to small nonprofits. Our line of credit program is easy, inexpensive, and costs nothing until used, making it a great cash backup plan for your nonprofit. If you'd like to learn more about the program, please visit us at nonprofitmbapodcast.com. And if you decide to apply today, we will even give you a $250 credit on file. Or feel free to give us a call at 862-207-4118. Just remember the time to set up your line of credit is today, not when the emergency actually comes up. Today, I am very excited to be speaking with Diane Leonard from DH Leonard Consulting and Grant Writing Services. Diane is a grant professional certified and approved trainer of the Grant Professionals Association. Diane is also a Scrum trainer, Scrum master, and Scrum product owner by Scrum Incorporated. Diane began her career as a program officer a full-time staff member of a statewide grant-making organization, and she continues to serve as a reviewer for a variety of grant-making organizations. Since 2006, when she formed D.H. Leonard Consulting, Diane and her team have secured more than $82 million in competitive grant awards for the clients of D.H. Leonard Consulting in writing. She is an active member of the Grant Professional Association. Diane, welcome to today's Nonprofit MBA podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Stephen. Well, today's uh, topic is going to get a lot of hits uh, because whenever you talk about the biggest mistakes, it's always a a well-listened-to podcast. Today's topic, uh, the top 10 grant writing mistakes uh, and I think it's going to be really important because probably a lot of the listeners that we're going to be listening today have either never applied for a grant and wanted to, or have applied to grants and have won them. So I'll be really curious as, as I'm sure our listeners will be as to what you have to say. So why don't we just start off by telling, by giving us some insight as to the number one biggest mistake that you see that people make when writing grants. Right. It is so hard to pick the number one, like David Letterman style. I'm like, oh, what was the one? And I think that uh, whether we're talking about foundation grants, state or federal, the most common and the most expensive mistake is that organizations aren't assessing their likelihood of being competitive for that specific opportunity, because it's different for each grant opportunity they might consider. And they might have been really competitive for a local foundation grant, but that doesn't mean they're going to be highly competitive for maybe a federal grant or even vice versa. They could have gotten a federal grant, but they might not be the right fit, the most competitive maybe at the local level. So they really need, each organization needs to stop and assess their likelihood of competitiveness for each application they're considering. And it's the, that pressure on deadlines and what's coming up and how much is on our plates, I think is what prevents people from taking that step and really assessing, which is therefore the mistake. Yeah. It's, it's the old adage, more is less, right? So if you spend the time really understanding uh, the organization that's offering the grant, right to begin with, right? And what they're really, really looking for, uh, you can really reduce a lot of time because let's face it, writing the questions out for the grant takes a lot of time, correct? It does. I mean, you're talking at least double digits hours on any foundation, usually way more. And if we're all the way up to federal grants, that's an average of 100 people hours per application. That is no small amount of time. (laughs) Yeah. And you just really spend the time really understanding and uh, of what they're really, how they're issuing the award, who they're looking for. Uh, does it often say it right in the the uh, the instructions about the grant? This is what we want. I mean, is it usually really accurate? Oh well, I'm going to say it depends. It's my favorite huh. answer. 
Sometimes it's very clear. These are the types of organizations that are eligible. These are the types of costs that are eligible. Other times, I might argue, despite best intention by the grant maker, it could feel as clear as mud for what it is that they really want to do or who do they want to do it with or how do they anticipate it could be done. So there's a pretty big spectrum for what you'll see in guidelines. Um, But you're right, oftentimes it is there and you need to take the time to read them without rose-colored sunglasses on. Do you think it makes sense uh, to always call the organization and speak to somebody uh, at the organization that's issuing the grant to, to just say to him, this is what we do. Do you think we're a good candidate for this grant? So reaching out for relationship building is hugely important when a grant maker will allow it. Some grant makers don't have that capacity or preference, in which case we need to respect that. But you're right. If they have the capacity and or the preference, reaching out is hugely important. I love that you said to phone them. I'm, I love to go. I say it's old school, but the reality is our inboxes are all so overwhelmed. Let's try to reach a grant maker via phone because then we also have the added benefit of hearing their tone and inflection. What's really important, and this is actually gets to another one of those mistakes, is thinking about how do you pitch yourself? That's really what it is. It's a grant maker learning about you for the first time. So you don't want to put the burden on them to say, here's all the great stuff we do, because all nonprofits are doing really great mission-centered work. Here's everything we do. What do you think? And instead to say, I've done my homework on you. And let's wordsmith it and polish it a bit, right? But basically, I've done my homework on you. And based on what we saw, we think we're a fit for you, a funding partner for you, because do you agree after they've, you know, you've described what it is? And just in a quick 30, 60 second summary, uh, not telling them your whole history, your mission statement when you were founded, but really proving that you've done your homework. This is your theory on why you're a fit and letting them react. And then you can hear that pregnant pause or the, oh, that's interesting on the other line if, as you suggested, you actually phone. So you walked us right into one of our, our mistakes there because relationship building is often, despite best intentions, set to the side under the pressure of deadlines. And that also then is a, a big mistake in grant seeking. Yeah, we had a really good uh, uh, person on the podcast a, a while ago and she was on the other side. She was actually the person that gave out the grants. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that she said for our listeners is that there aren't many people who call her. So, you know, if you think that you're going to like lose out because you called the organization and you're bothering them, she said just the opposite. She loves it when people call her. And, uh, and, and she's, and so uh, you, I, what I would say to uh, our listeners based on the, uh, I don't, we've probably done 15 grant writing podcasts, uh, each one of them different. Um, and from what I, I'm hearing is that number one is the uh, nonprofits are afraid to do it. Number two is because they think that everybody's doing it. Number three is not everybody's hardly doing it. And number four is it's one of the key ingredients that can help you win the bid and also reduce the amount of time so you can spend time on your other important grants uh, that you're that you're applying for. So, I mean, that's like a summary of what I've learned by listening to experts uh, like yourself, Diane. Um, so what, are, what is another thing that you would say is a big mistake that people make? Well, it actually comes down to online portals. And the reason that that is such a big mistake, um, I, as you said in my bio, I was a grant maker when I started my career. So on the other side of the equation too. And I am completely dating myself here for my age. I was part of the group that was uh, piloting online grant applications. If I knew then what I knew now, I might have provided some different input within that working group. But I mean, online portals are the way we apply. We don't have to worry about binders and we don't have to worry about, okay, can I use a binder clip or am I stapling? Those days are long since gone. For most applications, we actually did one with binders earlier this year. And I was like, wait a second, what year is it? Did we time warp? 
But with the reality of online portals, there are different software vendors offering offering different portals. Different grant makers have different registration requirements, different character accounts, etc. And not to mention what is the burden on the organization to prove they're eligible. So like with federal grants, there's three separate portals you have to register in before you could actually click an apply button. So because of the variation in portals, grants are stressful enough because of the pressure for organizations needing the funding. Saving registration for online portals till the end or near the end of the process is a huge undue stress. Um, they take time. The federal process can take up to two weeks. Not all foundation portals are as fast as, say, pick an online shopping vendor you want to spend your money with where, oh, magic, right? You've got an online account in seconds. Not all foundation portals are nearly that fast. Some take up to a week before they will send you the invitation link. Um, but then once you're in, it's still, there's a lot of unknown. We found a, it was a custom portal. I'm sure they did a great job working with their software vendor to create said custom portal. It wasn't character maximums that they were noting. They were character minimums. If you did not provide 2,500 characters at a minimum per response, it turned red and you couldn't submit it. <laughs> We'd never come across that particular wow. style, but they didn't call them out as minimums. We assumed wrongly, right? Assumptions. There we go. We assumed it was a max, as is normally the case in the field. And so thankfully, we figured that out early because we were doing portals basically first. But, you know, it's a well-intentioned mistake. You're worried about the writing and what you're going to say and tell your story. But um, yeah, we're trying to take the stress out of the process anywhere you can so that you focus on the meat of what are you proposing, not these nuances around it. Diane, when, when, um, what percentage of the clients that you work with you think have never applied for grants before in the past? If I'm talking about our writing clients, uh, very, very few. Huh? We work with a few startup nonprofits every year that we have worked with them to build their grant readiness. Yeah. Um, on our training side of our work, though, the percent of folks that come to our different, like our our boot camps or our different webinars, the percent of people that are going after their first grant or their is second or their awful. fifth is <laughs> yeah. huge, yeah, huge, yeah. huge, huge portion. And I love that because what we're trying to do, it's sort of like, actually, as someone in finance, maybe this will, you'll love this analogy. It's like when you go to buy your first car or you want to like rent your first apartment and they're like, well, do you have any credit? And they want to do a well, so what nonprofits who have never applied for a grant before are doing is each grant they get, it's it's building their credibility in the funding community. Um, so usually if we're working with new groups that are brand new to grant seeking, we're encouraging them to look at their local funders, not to think outside of their community bounds, because it's more about relationship than any other grant bigger yeah. organizations are going after, right? Relationships yeah. are truly king there. Yeah, I, I started my career at work for Xerox, which uh, for those of us who are not old, <laughs> no, for those of us who are old, no, yeah, not old, Xerox was the Google of its day, right? And so uh, for uh, a, a number of years, I worked in the, in the government sector where we were uh, applying for and want, trying to win bids. And, you know, the, the, there was the key thing, uh, and I was really good at it, to be honest with you. Um, the key thing was you actually wanted to be able to influence somebody before you wrote the bid, before you answered the bid. So you, if you hadn't the ability to meet with the person, kind of really get a, a feel for uh, what they're looking for, maybe even help them, this is really advanced stuff, uh, help them <laughs> to write the questions in your favor, um, but also to apply to bids that you thought you could win. Um, it, that, you know, you really learned a lot about winning. And then of course, the more you learned, the, the higher percentage chances were that we won. And, you know, I think grant writing is a lot about just like that, where, you know, you have to find an angle, right. That helps you 
your organization be in the best position it can. Um, is, is that something you kind of feel the same way about? I think you're right that uh, if you think about an, the angle, what you're trying to do is there's people reading your work. And so while it, it's all mostly portal driven and it feels impersonal, there still is a person with emotions that's reading it. And maybe or maybe not, did you have the opportunity to talk with them and do that relationship building? Because you're right. If you talk to them, it's a huge competitive advantage. Huge. But how are you going to engage the emotions of those that are reading? How are you going to get them to advocate for you? Because there's a stack of proposals that they're reading. So what is the way that you tell your story that helps you stand out? Not um, by doing something, oh, wow, we've never seen it written that way before, right? Not in that sort of way, but how do you tell a factual story about your organization and what you want to do, the need of those that you serve or the community you're working in, and make it so that your reviewers can quickly give a soundbite of what they read and why they're excited. What was the main point of what you're going to do? What does success look like with the funding that you're requesting from them? That's really, I think, we talk about maybe an angle idea. A reviewer has to be able to say, wow, if we award $50,000 to them, they're going to do this. They need to be able to walk away on their own, whether they've read two pages or 10 and say that to their peers. And so that does feel a bit like an angle. What's going to be their big takeaway that they share? Yeah. Is it, uh, I, with all your experience, I would imagine when you are actually uh, filling out a grant for somebody um, that you kind of know already, you're like, uh, we have a 75% chance of really winning this one. Or, you know, we have a, you know, a, a 90% chance of winning this one because it just matches so well what the organization does versus what the grant is, is offering. Is that, you know, and I, I bet any money you, if it's 30% or less, unless it's a huge award, right. You won't even apply. I would even say it might be higher than 30%, oh. but we don't put it. Cause a lot of it is kind of it's the gut subjective, right. right? But, yeah, yeah. Um, you're right that you need to be very aware of when you don't stand a chance and feel comfortable saying no, because there's going to be something that's better for you to say yes to, and will be a better return for your investment of time as an organization. Um, and it's, it's really a sophisticated thing for a grant seeking organization to do to say, you know what, I'm looking at this federal opportunity and I see that there's only going to be eight awards hold on, wait a second, eight awards across the whole United States means, oh, okay, so not one per state, hmm, right? Like that's looking incredibly competitive. So, wow, are we really like perfectly positioned for this? Or should I go look at something else, right? So using what we can for empiricism to kind of add on that gut for do we really stand a chance or not? And will you ever go past kind of like 90% confidence? There's no such thing as a sure win, um, cause you can't control what are the relationships the funder has with the yeah. other applicants and how strong is theirs. So there's always something you're pushing against that you just don't know, but you're right. You can have a pretty high degree of confidence, never a guarantee until you have an award letter in hand or the check is in the bank, right? <laughs> but you can feel pretty confident that you've got the right fit and uh, have done all the things to do your best to get the award. Is one of your top 10 mistakes, uh, debriefing after you've lost a bit or no? Oh, interesting. It, it could be 11. <laughs> okay. A lot of the mistakes are about what goes into the application that would therefore make it stronger. Um, but that debrief, asking for feedback, many organizations think to do it if they get denied. Actually, what I would push as the mistake for maybe my 10.2 <laughs> is yeah. not asking for feedback when you get the award. Because a lot of the funders that you would ask if you got denied, they have either your score or your comments and they're like, ooh, okay, I want to try and avoid that in the future. But if you did it so well that you got the award, you want to replicate it. And it's not a guarantee with any funder. But so the mistake is that you don't ask for feedback all the time to then debrief as a group and say, okay. What do we keep? What do we change? What do we try differently? Um, the other mistakes that we have listed here that our team's really focused on with our organization is really about um, the things that 
either disengage reviewers in the application or leave them with unanswered questions, things that make it hard for them to advocate on your behalf. I think that's really what more than half of the common mistakes are. Um, and so actually the biggest one, and this is one that usually gets pushback. So I'll be curious to know what you think about this, Stephen. Acronyms. Using acronyms in any part of a grant application, we believe to be a mistake because even if you defined it for me on page one, I'm on page four and a half. Now I have to flip to remember what it is. Hmm. Now I'm not sure if I'm coming back to exactly the same spot or it's just disjointed reading. And so my train of thought or my excitement, yeah, you've lost me for a moment. So that usually gets a little bit of pushback. Like I said, character counted applications, you want to use acronyms, save some space, but we think using them at all uh, is a pretty big mistake that we want to avoid. Yeah. Well, you got to be thinking about what your reader is reading and acronyms are always used for your internal organization. Your, the person reading it's not part of your internal organization. So, um, so yeah, I, I, I think that's, you know, grant writing one-on-one really. Right. Uh, and also, I mean, definitely having someone else read it, maybe who's not even part of your organization so that they can give you feedback and say, what is this act? What is this acronym right here? And then you're like, Oh, so, uh, sorry. You know, but having someone else read it, who's not a part of your organization, I think might be, might be a, a really good idea. Um, yeah. uh, and going back to what you're saying about uh, getting like, once you've won a grant, calling them up. Well, what an incredible opportunity anyway, because they already want to speak to you, won the grant. Yeah, right? Right? <laughs> and then, and then it's all about the questions, right? Like, by the way, was there, why did you select us? Thank you first is thank you. Cause <laughs> there might, might be more coming down. Right. So you want to say thank you. Number two is, uh, you know, what did you like about our application? And number, then the then the next one is, you know, what do you think we could approve upon? Right. Um, what well, agreed? Absolutely agree because each grant maker, there's a great article uh, that was written back in 2018 by Allison Shirk in the Philanthropy News Digest. And the title is, You Know One Foundation, dot, dot, dot. So you know one foundation. So hearing and debriefing what did a funder like, what didn't they like, gives you huge insight about that funder and what you could do to secure funding again in the future. And then it's not a perfect translation, unfortunately, to other grant makers, but it's usually helpful feedback as long as you remember. It's not a guarantee with any other funders it'll be exactly the same. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, you might hear from a grant maker, your budget justification was a delight to read. The tables made it so helpful to see how you split out the three years. You never made me solve for a variable. You didn't make me think about how many miles you were driving or how many pens you were buying. I could, I saw all the work, right? So you might get that kind of feedback and then they might say, but you know, gosh, that's thanks for asking what you can improve. We thought maybe your smart objectives, maybe the measurable component was a little weak. We were hoping maybe for a little more. Still great, still really excited. But all of a sudden, to your point, you're like, all right, we know what they liked. We know what they thought could be stronger. We can work with that. And yeah. that is such a huge, also, like that's a trust building thing for that particular funder relationship. Yeah, good, mm -hmm. good stuff. What else? Oh, well, I mean, we've talked about acronyms and you say, you say maybe that's a 101, but we see it in all levels. Hmm. How about citation? Citation trips grant professionals of all levels up because of what happens in character counting. Because when we talk about citing sources in a grant application, we don't always mean having the ability to put footnotes. If we're in a federal grant or a, maybe a big state grant, people go, they get that. Okay, well, I'm going to footnote. I'm going to follow my APA or MLA style for my organization. Good to go. But when I'm in these tiny character counted responses, how do I narratively cite in a way that keeps my reviewer from ever asking or thinking according to whom? And so the mistake is if we're not ensuring that we completely cite either whether it's census or our local newspaper or our own 
focus group that we conducted, if we're not citing our sources, our reviewers start to question the, red, the, the credibility of our organization and our expertise. So a good way, and I loved your suggestion about having someone outside read the application, that's actually something to give them as a prompt. As you're reading this, could you let me know if you ever wonder if this is fact or opinion, right? Or if you ever wonder according to whom or according to what source, let them know you're looking for that. Then they'll keep a special eye out, not only for their understanding, um, but that one can really trip people up because it can be a great proposal, but usually the need and the statistics that are going with it are pretty early in the proposal. So if you get your reviewer in a distracted place and wondering according to whom and how old is that data and where did that come from, they may not come back to a fully engaged reading space for the rest of the application. You ever, you ever have clients who, you know, have gone through your boot camp and they, you know, they are moving toward doing their own grant writing uh, or they're doing that. And then they just come back to you and say, okay, I've done this. Could you take some, some time right now and, uh, and read it through and give me your feedback uh, and the reason why I say that, I, I know that all small nonprofits uh, are, you know, every organization is concerned about spending money, um, right? And, you know, apply, uh, hiring a grant writer and those type of things. Although there's a lot, there's, you know, a, a grant writers should be wearing, certainly winning more bids than what they cost, right? So it's to me, it's a no brainer, right? But, um, you know, just to outsource it to someone like yourself. But, um, but but to reduce your costs and to really continue to learn how to write really good responses, having your feedback and just paying you for the that part of it is that a quite common. It is, especially for organizations that are that want to do it themselves. They have the capacity and the desire to write. Having if they don't have someone that they could already ask a friend or a family member that they would trust with a fierce red pen, having someone do editing work like my team or another grant professional is an amazing uh, and affordable way to quickly make some changes if needed. But there's actually then so in between like family and friends and hiring it out. There's a really nice middle ground that we've found um, if there's nonprofits that are in, whether it's the Association of Fundraising Professionals, or they're in a young nonprofit professionals chapter, or they're in a grant professionals association chapter, anything like that, um, trade editing with each other. If you're not competing against each other, say, listen, if you'll give me fresh eye editing on this proposal, when you have that big one you're excited for next month, I'll edit for you. And it gets you the benefit of the fresh eyes. And uh, especially then it's someone in the nonprofit community too, that'll kind of get the jargon and what you're up to. Um, but that can be another middle ground. Like I said, a little different than asking a family or friend, and it still is even easier on the operating budget. Good. What else? Let's talk about collaborative partners. So, not all organizations are designed to be the best lead applicant for all applications. And that's true whether you're just getting started or you've been doing grants for a long time. And it goes down to eligibility of the funder, like who do they want to fund what types of groups. But also then because funders are trying to do more with less fund in a way that reduces duplication, be more transparent, there's a lot they're trying to focus on too. They want to see, and they're encouraging collaboration in nonprofits. So some of that ends up being, unfortunately, in name only because organizations aren't talking to their partners early enough. So there's not true collaboration in the proposal. Uh, there's more of a, yeah, we, we support this. We could be a part of this. And so if instead you're engaging your collaborative partners, whoever they may be, uh, as soon as you think about starting an application, having them be a part of your work plan, thinking about how you truly can support their budgetary uh, requirements for being part of the work, not asking them to always come to the table for free with their own general operating dollars, um, engaging them as early in the process as possible makes it uh, more visibly apparent to the grant maker 
that this is truly a partnership and not just a stamp of, oh yeah, yeah, we've got a collaborative partner. And so that'll make you more competitive. That's one thing to say, oh, I've got a list of collaborative partners. It's another to describe in detail, what are they going to do? And oh, look, here's how they are engaged in our budget, how we make sure that they're fairly compensated for what they're going to do. Um, that's something that plays out from small foundation grants all the way to federal. Not spending enough time and effort on collaborative partners can really hurt your competitiveness. What about, um, tell me about the boot camp that you run. Tell me a little bit about it. Sure. Grant writing boot camp. Sounds like a lot of fun, doesn't it? <laughs> I know boot camps aren't for everybody, whether we're talking about like physically working out or like I joke about grant writing muscles. But um, the idea is like, let's dig in and spend a fair amount of time learning about the best practices of grants from finding them to working with our collaborative partners, writing a logic model. Oh, that makes people cringe sometimes, right? So what goes in a logic model and therefore then what goes in your work plan? So we walk through all of that from finding it to going ahead and clicking submit um, in it's 12 instructional hours. So it, that's part of why it's boot camp. It's intense. Um, and so that brings in folks from a wide range of organizations that are either getting started or trying to build their skills and trying to be as competitive as possible. I don't know if you knew this, but no one likes to get rejected. Right? Yeah, good to be angry, honestly. You know? So how do we get more yeses and fewer noes? And so that's really, it's all about how do you put together the most competitive application for your organization? What's the structure? How do you make it sustainable so that you don't get burned out or you aren't, oh, I, I never like hearing those stories where people are like, oh, I pulled an all-nighter to get the grant done. What? Oh my gosh, not sustainable. So we're trying to teach a sustainable way to approach grant seeking so that they're not doing heroic things. How long, how many, how long is the boot camp? Well, the virtual version is over uh, four afternoons, or I guess mornings, depending on what time zone you're in. Um, and post-COVID, hopefully would also be available again in uh, the two-day, more intensive in-person. But yeah. uh, it's a fully virtual class at this time uh, that gets offered a, a once a month. So it comes with all sorts of resource materials and templates for how to approach your logic model, your work plan, your budget narrative, and help people with e-mentoring in the year that follows. Yeah, it'll be interesting, won't it, to see if people actually go back to in-person boot camp, huh? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's always something to be said for walking away from the office for professional development because it's easier to let all the things continue, right? Let the yeah. emails happen, let the Slack messages build up versus, okay, well, how convenient. I don't have to travel and I can be anywhere. But at the same time, I've got another screen open where I'm watching my email build and over here I can see Slack, right? So I think there's pros and cons. I think, we'll, I think we're going to end up in a very hybrid space for professional development. Diane, look at you saying Slack, huh? Slack messages versus email, you know? <laughs> Our team loves Slack for asynchronous yeah. communication. We we want to keep our inbox to a minimum for internal communication. Yeah, yeah. I was against Slack uh, for a while because I'm like, listen, I don't want another email box. So internal communication, I think, is really, really, that's good for, you know, uh, I don't think I, I use Slack for anything else. But uh, anyway, um Good. What what uh, other uh, mistakes do you see people making often? Well, one of the other ones that we haven't talked about yet, um, it relates to the letters, it relates to the collaborative partners, but it also goes a step further. And now we're thinking about elected officials too. And since you've got a background in writing bids for government contracts, this one might resonate for you too. Mm. Letters of support versus letters of commitment um, and how much time you give those you're asking of them. So for example, if you're talking about your collaborative partners, you don't want a letter of support from them. Like rah, rah, they're doing a great job. You want a letter of commitment from them. We are going to do this thing and this thing and this thing. But 
to do that and have it be written well and thoughtfully, you need to give them time. So you need to ask them as soon as you know you're going to want it, which is probably pretty early on in the process. And then the other type of letter, the letter of support, which is 100% appropriate from elected officials or from maybe past clients or community members who have benefited from your work. Those are great. Rah, rah, doing a great job. So excited to see more. And it might sound like it'll take, oh, that just takes five minutes to write. But they're busy people, especially if we're talking about an elected official office. So we want to give them a lot of time. And some elected officials we've worked with over the years, they even they want to know more. They don't just want to sign a quick letter. They want a one-page summary or they might want a meeting. Well, now you're trying to find time on their calendar, but you still need the letter before the deadline. So the mistake is not asking for those letters with a lot of cushion for when you need it by for the deadline. Yeah, I you know, it's been a long time since I thought about this because it's been 25, almost over 30 years since I worked for Xerox. But one of the reasons why I could be blunt, why I was really good at my job, I think there's three reasons. One of them is I'm a very empathetic person and I can actually, I'm really good at trying to think about what you're thinking about. Like I'm, like I'm, I'm able to get it. So when I'm responding to a bid, I'm actually, you know, I'm like, okay, what do they, what do they really want here? And what would give me an advantage? Right. That, and then, and then number two is I'm very creative. So I can come up with solutions to present my organization in a way that matches exactly what they're looking for. And then the third thing is uh, I'm I'm highly competitive, so I want to win, right? I want to win this uh, bid for my organization, and and so you know the fourth thing is I'm going to put my time into the ones that you know are really the ones I want to win for whatever reason that is. But I you know the reason when I say that is the first part, and that is. Uh, I don't know if empathetic is the right word, uh, Diane. It's just the ability to put yourself in the other person's shoes. Uh, you know, I think that's just so critical because I think a lot of people are only thinking about their organization and that's it. But what's the mission of the people that are issuing the grant? What are they thinking? Like, for example, the person that I... I uh, had on here and I can't think of her name right now. Um, her organization um, that issue issues grants is they, they want to provide, uh, they want dental hygiene uh, to be provided. They work with all nonprofits that provide some form of free dental hygiene to help people. So, uh, so if your organization in some way, you know, did that, um, you know, they have a hard time giving the money out, you know, because they, they, there's not a lot of organizations that are involved in that. And, um, so, you know, what is empathy, empathy, the right word for this scenario? Well, I don't know, maybe. And what I'm thinking is, um, the way that you've described it, trying to understand that each grant maker has a different, a different why. I'm actually thinking about Simon Sinek. Yeah, Simon Sinek why, yeah, right? Yeah. Each grant maker has a different reason, whether they're, it's a family foundation, so it's really personal to them, or if it's that they're on staff and they're really passionate, maybe about the dental hygiene funding. Um, but they have a different reason that they're there and excited and what they're trying to accomplish with their funding. So while it might not be exactly the way your organization talks about your mission or what drives you in your work, can you understand where they're coming from and talk about where there's alignment and overlap? Yeah. I, I think empathy could be a word for it. Uh, understanding of their passion and their why. We can go there too. Uh, trying to have a shared understanding of how our work connects and overlaps. Um, that's part of then it's going to help influence how do you tell your story in a way that is customized to that funder. 
And people get like, you want us to customize every grant application? That's a lot of work. Can't yeah. we just send a template? Well, you you could. Should you? No, because they're all different. And they can, they'll read and be like, oh, this is just copy and paste. We know. But rather, you want to write an application that truly addresses that shared understanding and the alignment of the mission, um, which is what I think you were getting at. Yeah, and I think there's also a certain themes that will play itself over and over again throughout the the grant, right? Uh, the responses that you do, but you you might articulate it in a different way depending on the way the questions ask. Uh, you know, that, that by the way, for our listeners, that it's amazing how many times people uh, reference uh, Simon Sinek's book uh, "Start with Why." Hmm. I actually uh, I know Simon. I've uh, I, you know I don't think he knows me that well, but. I, I knew him when he first started his career and how he transitioned into writing that book, uh, Start With Why. And it is a great book that I that I use a lot in my life and, and business with saying, okay, well, why am I doing this? Or And I do it with my kids all the time. Like, this is why you're going to school. Why do you think you're going to school? Tell me why you think of it. Because it... But I think I think it's a really good book if people are out there are, are readers uh, or listening to uh, it on audio. Uh, I think it really can resonate a lot, especially with grant writing. Um, what what haven't we covered? Oh well, let's see. How much time do we have left to talk about grants? Because I mean, I, I talk grants all day. Yeah. To me, grants—they're one of my uh, my favorite things. You know, the other thing that is—we'll call this like. Uh, maybe a, the overarching piece about all of it. When we think about grants, we've talked about relationships, we've talked about the writing and what goes into the writing, but grant professionals or grant writers or by whatever title they're going at the moment as they're working on that application, they're really, they're facilitating this for an organization. Occasionally they are the program expert that has both the programmatic knowledge of what's going to be done and the skill and the desire to write the grant. But usually they're writing on behalf of the organization or on behalf of the team that will do it. So they're serving as a facilitator and a gatherer of information. So, you know, maybe the biggest mistake of all, like I said, that sort of encompasses everything is these were directed to the person writing the grant. A nonprofit mistake that is made is to assume that a person can air quotes, just write a grant without input from others in the organization. That is so stressful for the organization then when they get the grant and try to implement it because it might not be exactly what they wanted or the way they wanted the budget. There is no just about grant writing. It is not a solo sport. It is a team sport. One writer, totally fine. Yes, person that's writing, spearheading, facilitating, bringing it all together, but not well without input from finance and programs and maybe operations and HR. So I'm going to say that's our big catch-all mistake, but at probably an organizational level, not necessarily just like writing level. Yeah, I could see where, uh, again, I've never applied for a grant. So, um, but I can see where once you've determined the grants that you're going to go for, that you you take some of the key questions and you you get your team together and you just say is give me a give me a highlight of what you think we should be talking about here and then you kind of go through each one and person says well you you might want to mention we do this or you might want to mention this situation or you might want to mention this person and then that person who's going to be writing the grant can go back and then see if they can incorporate that ideas instead of the reverse which is you write the responses and then you go back to everybody and say, well, what do you think? Uh, does that make sense? Yeah. Having the, the meeting in advance of writing, always a best, the best idea. Even it still is great if you draft something, frame it out and then ask for input based on what you might've already known. That's okay too. As long as input's coming somewhere and that it's not all on one single person's shoulders, um, that's just, it's not a sustainable and competitive way to approach grants. It's also, uh, isn't it a great way to build culture within your nonprofit mm-hmm. too, right? I mean, really, I mean, if I'm part of that nonprofit and, and we're all talking the same language, like because we're hearing it from other people, but we're, you know, I don't know what finance is doing. I don't know what, uh, you know, uh, 
fundraising is doing. I, you know, you know, depending on the size of the organization, certainly. Uh, um, I think after a certain amount of people, it starts to everyone's kind of in their own silos. This really brings everybody together. Oh, uh, right. It is. It's in having worked in nonprofits my whole career. Like it is one of the things that can be a tie that binds uh, in a positive way. Often yeah. people have experienced it in a stressful way, but it can be really positive because now everyone's excited about the new project or understands better the program design. That while they might be, you know, entering client data into their database and not always see the big thing. Maybe now they're more connected to what the big idea is and what their data they enter. How is it getting used? It's getting used to get money so that we can continue to do the great thing. It helps people see uh, their connection to the bigger mission and how it works. Is it can be one of the really positive things about grants for sure. Is there you know there is a, there's an old adage that said is when you have a big problem you break it down into little parts. So in this scenario, if you have a grant. Do you ever have people a grant opportunity? Do you ever have an opportunity? Do you ever take the questions? And let's say you had this meeting and everyone's giving you the insight. Do you then say, okay, uh, this group, could you answer these questions? And this group, you answer these questions and, you know, we'll do this. Uh, does that work? Because it, I mean, you probably have to read it after to make sure it's ever it. I mean, do you think the the people who are awarding the grants noticed that it was done by different people? Yeah. If you're not careful, they, the grant reviewers certainly can, but so let's take, for example, just real quick, a, a big federal grant, very common to have an external evaluator involved because of maybe the requirements of the federal agency or department. And that evaluator who's going to once awarded do the evaluation work is often then also going to offer to help write the section on evaluation. They're going to talk about the, the data, the processes, et cetera. And that as well-written as it will be is likely then in a different voice than the rest of the application that the writer would have written in. Or then if you maybe parsed out and you said, okay, uh, vice president of programs, could you and your team tackle the project description for me? Could you write this response here to letter 3B? You've got another set of voices. So that grant writer, grant professional is then going to put on the hat of smoothing so that it sounds like it is one voice, one voice. even though you mm -hmm. had multiple contributors, right? That's got to be one of the things that you polish probably more towards the end. Um, even just tiny little things, right? Uh, the voice that's used in a proposal, some of the language choice, those can be little ways that uh, the grant professional will help smooth if you've got multiple contributors. But it can be a very possible uh, and positive way to get everyone contributing to an application. Okay, so we have uh, two minutes left. Okay, and um, and was there anything that you want to add to without me commenting? <laughs> was there anything else that you want to add uh, to the top ten mistakes that people kind of make? Well, we I, we covered all ten in our wow. conversation. I know we made it through all of them. We didn't necessarily call all of them out, but in discussion, we covered all ten, and then we even gave like our our ten point two with uh, the make sure you ask for feedback, whether you got it or not. Yeah. Here's a bonus one too. <laughs> Project management is a huge part of successful grant applications because you are dealing with an external stakeholders deadline. They don't want to hear about whatever happened that produced an application an hour late or a day late. It doesn't matter. It's past the deadline. It's gone. And we get that. So how do you prevent that from being a stress point? Strong project management skills <laughs> and submitting early, always having a target for submitting early. So, you know, whether it's like our team, we love agile and specifically we love the scrum framework. That has been an amazing way that our team focuses on how do we manage and prioritize projects. Other teams, they don't put a word to the framework, but they love using something like Trello which is an agile management tool, but they have a way that they like keep track and make their work visible. I know another team that literally has post-its on the wall of their grant calendar. So everyone in the organization 
can see all the big things happening and what are priorities for application deadlines and maybe even where they can help. So we talked tactically about applications, smart objectives, budgets, acronyms, but for you to really keep going after grants, be sustainably competitive, you need to be a well-versed project manager as a grant writer. So when you're thinking about your professional development, you might say, oh yeah, acronyms, don't use them, check, knew that. Smart objectives, check, knew that. Um, but you're trying to figure out how to do more with less, how to be less stressed, more sustainable, not burn out. Might be time to look at project management skills to think about how to up your game even a little bit more. That might be another spot for organizations to look. Good stuff. All right. I'd like to thank so very much Diane Leonard from DH Leonard Consulting and Grant Writing Services for coming on today's podcast. If you like today's podcast, please feel free to share it with a friend and also subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. If you like today's podcast, please give us a review on your podcasting app to help us get the word out. The Nonprofit MBA podcast has been very, become very popular. I'm very proud of the work that we're doing here. We have so many incredible guests. I tell so many people, if you just listen to every one of the podcasts with these experts, your nonprofit will just make huge leaps and bounds. Um, and of course, if you're looking for a line of credit for your nonprofit, uh, it's great to help even out cash flow. It's you know, even if you never use it, it's good to have a cash backup plan. You can call us at 862-207-4118 or visit our website at nonprofitmbapodcast.com. Diane, if people want to get in touch with you, how would they go about doing that? Yeah, that's great. Thank you. They can reach us at dhleonardconsulting.com or they can phone our office at 315-285 5194. Great. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. So uh, for the first time in my life, I think it's the first time in my life, I actually had to use the services of a nonprofit for myself and my family for a serious family issue that went on. And uh, I can't tell you how thankful I was that this organization was there, not only just for me, but for the other people who were there who obviously really, really needed the help. And I say this at the end of every podcast. Um, thank you all for making the world a better place. We all need to do our part. Um, I need to do more, uh, uh, but you guys are on the front lines. Uh, we all need uh, to do a better job and you guys are doing it every single night, uh, every single day. And I thank you for that. So everybody have a fantastic day. Get outside, enjoy the beautiful weather. The winter's coming for some of us, for others, it's already here. <laughs> so get outside, enjoy, smell the roses, and have a fantastic day. <laughs>